Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. I suppose in the middle of a civil war, uh, all kinds of different protest songs could be written or might be written. Uh, That was certainly the case for one particular song in the middle of the English Civil War in the 1640s. I bet you had no expectation you were going to hear about the English Civil War this morning, but here we are. Uh, Now, of all the reasons to write a protest ballad, which is a fantastic phrase in and of itself, of all the reasons to write a protest ballad in the middle of the English Civil War, we could probably list many. Uh, Ruthless tyrant, perhaps, down with the monarchy, Uh, you know, somebody protesting these uh, uh, radicals that are making trouble, but no, none of those things. Uh, This particular protest ballad was written because in the middle of the English Civil War, which lasted like a whole decade, uh, in the middle of all of this, Parliament, which is kind of their Congress, decided they needed to do something about the fact that people were much too happy around Christmas time. People were actually celebrating Christmas, and this had to stop. Christmas was a holy day. It needed to be treated as such, somber and serious, no more celebrating Christmas. No happiness. No happy Christmas. Serious. And so somebody wrote a protest ballad about it, which is fantastic. Uh, They called the song, The World Turned Upside Down, subtitle, uh, and I I love this subtitle, a brief description of the ridiculous fashions of these distracted times. Now, there is an antiquated phrase that totally applies to 2023, the the ridiculous fashions of these distracted times. So if you want to write your own protest ballad about something, the the lane is wide open for you. Okay, so so check out these lyrics to this song, uh, which as you see on your screen, is sung to the tune of When the King Enjoys His Own Again. I have no idea what that tune is. I love that this protest ballad was written in the middle of a civil war to a tune called When the King Enjoys His Own Again. So uh, here is how this song goes, uh, or at least these are the lyrics. Uh, Listen to me and you shall hear news hath not been this thousand year since Herod, Caesar, and many more You never heard the like before. Holidays are despised. New fashions are devised. Old Christmas is kicked out of town. Yet let's be content. And the times lament. You see the world turned upside down. The wise men did rejoice to see our Savior Christ's nativity. The angels did good tidings bring. The shepherds did rejoice and sing. Let all honest men take example by them. Why should we from good laws be bound? Yet let's be content. And the times lament, you see the world turned upside down. And it sort of continues from there for a few more verses, but you get the idea. In the American Revolution, so we're now 130 years later, if you want to pull out your mental timeline of world history. uh, In the American Revolution, legend has it that the British played this song after they were defeated. So... You you have to realize that at the time, military bands were actually musical bands that were for more than just halftime at the football game. Like they actually went with the military. And then if you won, you would get to play a song from your nation in victory. uh, And the side that was defeated would have to play a song from the victor's country. 
Okay? So that's how this is supposed to work. The legend has it that when the British would beat the Americans in battle, they would play Yankee Doodle Dandy to mock the Americans. You had no idea that that song you were teaching your children was actually a mockery war song. Anyway, and uh, the Americans were a little bit perturbed by this. So according to legend, and we cannot prove it at all, uh, it seems actually unlikely, but according to legend, when the Americans finally beat the British... George Washington, the commander of the American army, told the British that he didn't want them uh, playing any American songs. They had played enough of those already. So he had them play this song, this Christmas protest ballad from 130 years earlier uh, as they marched sadly away in defeat. Uh, In the 2015 musical Hamilton, composer Lin-Manuel Miranda recounts the American revolutionary victory, uh, and he samples this lyric, the world turned upside down, to highlight how much this victory changed how the world would operate for the next 200 plus years on into today. The power structures because of this uprising in America, the power structures of the world were turned upside down. This week, we are entering into the season of Lent, this season on in the, the church calendar where we anticipate uh, the coming of Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead that we will celebrate at Easter. It's this season of examining our own priorities and motives and trying to figure out what it means that we are following a Savior who actually leads us as we follow him directly to the cross. And how do our motivations and priorities get in line in some way with following our leader straight to the cross? Through the cross... Through Jesus' death upon it, the power structures of the world are turned upside down. It is, the cross, in my opinion, the most paradoxical victory in all of human history, especially if it accomplished all the things that Jesus' followers say it accomplished. It is a story that turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago, and has continued to upend expectations for nearly two millennia now. Author Malcolm Gladwell says the difference between an anecdote and a story is this, that an anecdote is an expected account, and a story in some way betrays the listener or reader. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but it's an interesting definition to play with. So an anecdote would be, hey, I was walking down the street uh, over in Longview in front of the police station. I looked down and there's a $100 bill. So I picked it up and I took it into the police station um, and uh, I turned it into them as as lost money. And uh, they'll call me in 90 days if nobody has claimed it. Okay, an anecdote. A story, I uh, found $100 
uh, on the ground in front of the Longview police station. Um, and I thought about turning it in, but I knew that Joe was right down the street on the street corner. And so I was going to take the money to Joe. Uh, and so I took the, the money because Joe is there every week with his cardboard sign asking for money. So I knew I was going to make Joe's day. And there's no money out of my pocket. I found it on the street. So I went to take it to Joe and I handed him the money and he looked at me really confused. Like, why would anybody be handing him money? I'm like, hey, I'm handing you this because of your sign. And he's still looking at me confused. And as uh, we're standing there with me just holding this $100 bill, uh, a cat comes running out of the alley and snatches the $100 bill and runs down the street. And Joe traces after him. And I thought I would never see him again. Uh, but then uh, later that afternoon, I saw Joe in the grocery store with his $100 bill uh, and a grocery cart full of cat food. Um, okay, so... Uh, that um, may not be a good story, but it was a story you did not see coming, all right? A story that betrays what we expect. Part of why Jesus' story has captured imaginations, not just as a religion, but as a basis for uh, movies and musicals and Narnian epics, is because it betrays what we expect. The story of Jesus betrays what we expect. We expect, and Jesus' contemporaries expected a military or political victory that is still so often what we put our hope in. We expect that a promise of new life is going to be fulfilled through pleasure, not through death. And so the cross ends up feeling like a twist at the end of the story. But as we go through this season, as we head toward uh, Easter and Good Friday, We want to do so with a passage that shows that turning the world upside down is not a twist at the end of Jesus's story, but it is actually the whole story. In Matthew's gospel, which we heard from a little earlier, Matthew's account of Jesus's life, he starts out at the very beginning with the genealogy of Jesus, with Jesus's family lineage going back all the way to the very beginning, which is perhaps a boring way to start a story, but was important to Matthew to start that way, to show uh, that, that Jesus is a continuation of the story that God is writing. And then he moves into his account of the Christmas story, showing how many Old Testament prophecies Jesus fulfilled simply by how and where and when he was born, following the same idea that, that Jesus is a part of this longer Story. He has this lineage of God in his life. And then Matthew fast forwards to adulthood and he recounts Jesus's baptism and Jesus going out in the desert to face down and turn down temptation. Events that kicked off Jesus's ministry as an adult. And Matthew's contention here is that Jesus's uh, history and holiness give authority to his teachings and ministry. That, that because of where he is coming from, because of the story he is fulfilling, because of his own holiness, we should listen to what he has to say, which becomes important because Matthew immediately turns to Jesus doing some things we would definitely not expect a holy person to do. And the people around uh, uh, Matthew, the, the people who would have, would have been reading his letter, definitely did not expect holy people to do these things. And then Matthew launches into some teachings of Jesus Uh, that we would also not expect, that would uh, in many ways betray what we would expect. First, he has Jesus invite a few fishermen 
to follow him, to be his disciples, his students. Now, most rabbis who would want to collect students would go to, you know, the top of the class students at school, not the high school dropouts working minimum wage, barely scraping by trying to feed their families. And yet that's where Jesus went. And then uh, as the fishermen started to follow him, crowds started to gather. People started coming from all over the place, but it wasn't uh, holy and uh, excitable people. It, it was people who were uh, in, in need of healing, in, in need of uh, some new uh, move of God in, in their life. As they gather, Jesus begins to heal the sick and the hurting and the demon-possessed. And these curses that seemed incurable, curses like illness, and social status, oppression. These curses that seemed unreversible are turned upside down. So uh, I want to read that section to us. This is Matthew. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 4, verse 23, and it'll lead us all the way up to the verses we already heard this morning from Nikita. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, let's think about who's making up these crowds. These are the people who have come to him for healing, who are sick, who've been outcast by society, who are demon-possessed. These are the crowds that he is gathering, the fishermen, the outcasts, the belittled, at best overlooked When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. These crowds of hurting and ill from various places and backgrounds. Now, the next three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and as a reminder, those chapters were put in much, much, much later. These are not Matthew's uh, breaking up of his letter. He wrote one big, long letter, and then we broke it up so we could uh, learn it and memorize it in little chunks. But in the way we have categorized it, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, is known as the Sermon on the Mount because it is a whole lengthy teaching of Jesus on the mountainside, as Matthew told us. And it is very possible that this really is a sermon, a teaching of Jesus's that Matthew recorded, wrote down, and is sharing. It is also possible, equally if not more so, that Matthew is introducing us to the core teachings of Jesus. That he has given us Jesus's background, and now he introduces us to these core teachings that Jesus would have said these things often in a lot of different places. And if he is sort of collecting it in that way, he picked a very familiar setting for this collection because Jesus would have taught on many hillsides and open fields all over the region. 
So if not an exact account, a, a summary of very familiar scenes and teachings. And these teachings begin with the list we heard earlier that we now call the Beatitudes. And they're called this uh, because each statement uh, starts with the English word blessed, which we got from the Latin uh, that was beatitudo, beatitudo, and the Latin simply stuck. So the Beatitudes, a list of blessings. Now, a list of blessings like this is not at all unique to Jesus uh, of, of Nazareth. Lots of teachers in, in the centuries before and after Jesus uh, used a similar structure, and we have many of those recorded. Uh, one such list was recorded by another man named Jesus, because Jesus was also not that uncommon of a name. Uh, Jesus, son of Sirach, uh, in about 200 B.C., the book of Sirach is actually a Hebrew teaching that is preserved in the Old Testament of Catholic Bibles and Orthodox Christian Bibles, but not in our Protestant Bibles. And that is a whole story for a whole nother day. Uh, although I do encourage you to uh, dig in and research it. Go to our friend Google. There is lots of good information out there about how the Old Testament got uh, preserved and canonized and why it's different uh, for different sections of, of Christianity. Uh, but here are our Jesus, son of Sirach's uh, Beatitudes. He says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy the man who lives with a sensible wife, and the one who does not plow with ox and ass together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue, and the one who has not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Now these are intended to be listed without explanation because explanation isn't really necessary. These are the truths we expect. Wisdom, fear of the Lord, and applaudable children are all obviously good things. We all want good friends and attentive listeners and a sensible spouse. And some of you know, some of you know the pain of serving a boss where you know the job better than they do, and it's so frustrating. These make sense to us, and they put the world in a, a proper perspective. You are blessed if you have a good family, good boss, good friends, and good faith. I mean, that sounds like something we would hear just about anywhere. You're blessed, good family, good boss, good friends, good faith, and yet, how completely different from the list that we heard earlier from Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that does not mean that Jesus would look at, Jesus of Nazareth would look at this list and, and go, no, 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 none of this is true. Uh, like, absolutely, some of these things are very, very good. Some of these things are blessings of of God. And yet his list focuses on very different things. Uh, and there's one more significant difference uh, between uh, the Beatitudes we heard earlier from Matthew 5 and other lists similarly. And I think this is really important. Jesus's Beatitudes are promises of comfort, not goals of achievement. Jesus's Beatitudes in Matthew 5 are promises of comfort, not goals of of achievement. 
And here's why that's significant. We, we tend to look at a list like this and see a to-do list. Okay? For instance, from Jesus of Syrac's list, we go, okay, uh, happy people don't work for inferiors or have foolish spouses. And my boss is a jerk and my husband is an idiot, so I'm out. In this list in Matthew from Jesus of Nazareth, if the meek are blessed, well then by all means, I will be the meekest, humblest person you ever did see. Oh, the persecuted are blessed. Well, I can stir up some persecution or at least label something persecution so I feel better about it, but we can definitely find some persecution around here. But Jesus isn't talking to people who are aiming for this. Remember the people who are in this crowd, the sick and the broken, the neglected and outcast, the overlooked and literally pushed aside, sent out of their own families, many of them unable to be around other human interaction. Jesus isn't talking to people who are aspiring for this list. He is talking to people who are living this list, who are experiencing these things already. And what he is promising them is comfort. And my notes just totally disappeared on me. <laughs> Any other point in this? I would have been good with that. All right, we're defining blessed. Let's do that. Let's define this term blessed, because if we're going to use it a lot in the ensuing weeks as we talk about each of these Beatitudes one at a time, we should define this, this term. So when we are talking about the blessings of God, we are talking about the witness and favor of God, the witness and favor of God. And I know that witness is not actually a word, but with is not quite strong enough either, because you can be with somebody at a party and never actually talk to them or see them for two hours. You can go on a hike with somebody and you both walk the same trail, but you weren't really connecting with each other. The blessing of God is more than his presence with us. He is always present with us, whether we recognize that or not. This is a connection. This is an intimacy to this being with. Uh, this is a relationship being built head on. This is God being on your team. And then as opposed to how the world has treated this crowd of people Jesus is talking to, Jesus is promising them that God actually favors them and will care for them directly. And I do want to be a little bit careful with this word favor uh, because favor is different than provision or at least in how I want us to use it here in this, this definition. Jesus doesn't promise that those who hunger and thirst for justice will have just outcomes to everything that they do. He doesn't promise to people who are hungry for food that they will be fed. There isn't a, a provision promise here. And again, this, this list isn't a list of tasks to accomplish if you want to earn God's provision. This is God's promise of care and comfort for the hurting. Uh, we have always translated uh, this verse uh, with this English word blessed all, all, all the way back to the first 
uh, English translations. And, and bless is, is a fine translation. Uh, the commentator R.T. France points out that there isn't really an exact translation uh, for what the Greek word is here. Blessed works, um, he says congratulations may be a better term, uh, as in congratulations to the merciful, you will be shown mercy. Uh, he says probably actually the best phrase in the English language uh, to, to get at this um, is the Australian phrase, good on ya, like good on ya, mate, but it's, that'd be weird for the rest of us to use, so uh, we'll, we'll stick with blessed so the, the Beatitudes of Jesus of Nazareth are a list of congratulations paired with a specific promise. And that specific promise is necessary because these, as we will see, uh, are not things we would expect to be congratulated for. These are, these are weird things to be congratulated for, and so there is this promise that goes with them. For instance, and just in case we still want to see this list as a to-do list to earn God's favor or provision, Jesus starts in the exact opposite place. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Now, one of the things that I would like to do as we go through this in this Lent season uh, is uh, memorize a little scripture together, one verse at a time. So what we're going to do um, is we're going to read this together three times, uh, and we'll take away a, a couple of words, like an anti-Vanna White or something, uh, every time we, we go through it, okay? So uh, let's, let's read this together, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Awesome. Uh, out of curiosity, because I, I grew up with blessed, and so I, my tongue gets all tripped. Do we have, do, how many people are blessed people when they read this? Okay, we got some blessed. How many people blessed? Okay, good. Awesome. Pick your favorite. Let's go with it. All right, let's, let's uh, do this a second time. You ready? Okay, ready? And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And one more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not they're in charge of the kingdom of heaven, but they are citizens of heaven. They don't belong to the kingdoms of this world, but they belong to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, then. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Uh, a kingdom, at least one that would work perfectly, a kingdom is a place, a territory, a people in which the desires and directions of the king are accomplished. Okay? That's, that's one of the perks of being the king is that your desires and directions should be accomplished by those you tell them to. I want this, you will do this. Now, we get really antsy about that because um, we know the human heart. Um, and the, the human heart uh, leads to all kinds of bad people having bad desires and bad directions when put in positions of power. Uh, and, and so if a uh, person with uh, sinful desires and directions is in charge in a kingdom, uh, bad things can happen. Uh, inversely, if the one in charge of the kingdom is fully and truly good, then it is a fully and truly good kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is where God's desires and directions are accomplished. 
Kingdom of heaven is where God's desires and directions are accomplished. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. The desires and directions of God will be accomplished in you. And accomplished in them because people who can make this world their kingdom, who have the the power to to make a kingdom for themselves, are, are easily tempted to accomplish their own desires and directions. But the poor in spirit recognize that this world and whatever power and strength they have here is not where blessing is found. So who are the poor in spirit? How do we define this term? Uh, first, in this verse, it really does say poor in spirit. Uh, this does not mean financially poor. There are other places in the Gospels where Jesus blesses the financially poor. But this is about more than just finances. It is spiritually poor which sounds like a really ridiculous phrase in our modern thinking. It is lacking in spiritual power, strength, or influence. The New Living Translation adds some words to this verse, and they translate it as God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. And, and I, I like that. Uh, I think it's a little helpful that, that it's those who recognize their need for God. Again, we can be tempted to make this a task and a to-do list. Like, okay, I gotta be really good at recognizing. This is people who avoid spiritual pride, who avoid self-righteousness, who recognize their need to be dependent on God who aren't busy setting up their own kingdom, but accepting God's reign in their life. And remember, Jesus is talking to people who have been outcast, who've been labeled as bad and unholy and not worthy of having anything to do with God or God's people. And they are not the social, political, or religious elite. They can't name drop or politically maneuver or wield power. They are simply everyday people who want to follow Jesus. In a world where authority comes through power and social standing, where we believe that the ability to make a difference in this world comes through our authority and power and getting what we want, Jesus is turning the world upside down. And Jesus is inviting people to be part of a kingdom where they don't have to prove their worth or justify their inclusion. Jesus is inviting people to be part of a kingdom so unlike the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is inviting you to be part of a kingdom where you don't have to prove your worth or justify your inclusion. Where you don't have to do all the right things just to make sure that God notices you. Where you don't have to prove that you belong here. Jesus has just started in Matthew's account to gather up the crowds of people. 
And they're going to start asking the question, boy, this is a lot of fun. There's some really cool things happening. What do I have to do to belong here? What do I have to do to stay here? What do I have to do to prove that I can be part of this? What do I have to do to prove to Jesus, to get Jesus's attention, to get God on my side? Jesus is inviting them and inviting us to be part of a kingdom where we don't have to prove our worth. We don't have to justify our inclusion. You don't have to earn the presence of God or justify his love for you. And this is really good news. And if you have grown up or you have been living in some sort of faith understanding that tells you that the morally superior are the most loved, And as much as you are able, can you let this be good news? That you don't have to be perfect to be loved. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be better than other people to be included in God's sight and kingdom and embrace. Jesus is inviting us into this kingdom where we don't have to prove or justify where it is not the religiously rich or the politically powerful that he congratulates and blesses. It's the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are everyday people who recognize their need for God, who recognize that they are not going to be able to muster up all of the things that they need, that they're not going to be able to muster up enough for all of the people around them, that they're not going to be able to muster up on their own faith that changes the world, that that we recognize our need for God. And we're so uncomfortable with recognizing need and acknowledging dependence. It's just hard. But these are people who aren't trying to be spiritually impressive They're just recognizing that they're spiritually needy. They may not be the most skilled, most talented, the most accomplished. They're just the most dependent. They aren't looking for power or prestige. They they just want to see the desires and directions of God come alive in the world around them. These are the people who pray. Lord, may your kingdom come in us as it is in heaven. And so Jesus says, congratulations to the everyday people who recognize their need for God. The desires and directions of God will come alive among you. So let's be those everyday people. Let me pray for us and for his kingdom come as the worship team comes up. Father God, we, uh, we want so bad to prove to you that we can earn it, to prove to you that somehow 
uh, your forgiveness of us was not a mistake, even though we wonder sometimes. We want so badly to convince ourselves and the other people around us that we've got it together. We really can do it. That we're enough based on what we can do for you or for other people. Father, I, I know that I so struggle to acknowledge need, to acknowledge lack, to acknowledge that I don't have it, whatever it is. Father God, we need you. We want to come to you to recognize our need for your holiness, for your power, for your grace. We, we want to recognize that we are loved with nothing to offer. That we um, get to participate in seeing your kingdom come alive in us, in the world around us, even when we have nothing to offer, especially when we have nothing to offer. So we just bring ourselves to you, God, and I'm so grateful that that is all you ask for. You just ask for us, for our hearts, to recognize our need for you, to want to follow you. So we follow after you. Would you lead us and guide us? Would your kingdom come on earth? in us, in our community, as it is in heaven. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.